book of Acts. This is, uh, is going to be a fun study. Um, and normally when we start out a study, we're, you know, we'll get really into the background and there's some questions we want to answer before we even really get in. Um, but Acts is clean. It's super easy to kind of get into. Um, you know, some of the kind of opening questions we'll, we would always get into is who? This is written by, the, by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Um, Acts is one of those books that's never really um, been challenged in terms of authorship um, or time or any of these things. Like when we do higher criticisms, you might know what higher criticism and lower criticisms are um, as you get into Scripture. Higher criticism is when we kind of look at historically who wrote it and if that, if the language that it's written in fits the time that it was supposedly written in. So we, we kind of look at, at where the church typically says this book goes. Is it possible that it really did go there, that it really was written by this guy, or did a redactor later copy it and make some adjustments? And that's when we get more technical with the with the text itself. And what's ironic is the book of Acts is never really, they've tried a lot of times to, to critique it with higher criticisms, and it just holds up. It holds up as a history book. Even all the markers for a good history book for that time, um, Acts, Acts has them all. I mean, it holds up as solid history. Uh, there's some passages we call the we passages of Acts. Um, not we as in Irish, not little passages, but we as in inclusive, all of us, that are huge because um, when you look at a history book from a particular era, uh, determining whether or not the author was a first-hand observer is big. Um, and, and Luke, several times in the book, will say, and then we went and did this. It shows that he was kind of there observing. He was firsthand. This is kind of his journey um, uh, through the early church, which is big, and some of his we passages match up with later stuff where Paul mentions being with Luke and, and where Luke is and they fit. So Acts is super clean. No real challenges to authorship. The date is, is a little bit fun. 64-65 um, is when they put it. We know it was at least 64 because of how far Paul made it into his journey by the end of the book. It makes it pretty clean as to when it ends. Whether or not it was written in 65 is kind of big. 65 end of 64 into 65 is when Nero burns Rome and blames the Christians, and it sets off the huge persecution of the Christians. And Luke doesn't mention that, but there is some, there are some people who think that uh, the purpose of the book, the reason Luke wrote the book, was to um, to be kind of secretive. To as the persecution set in, they started realizing a lot of these firsthand observers were going to be killed. The persecution was that. Stiff, and so they started commissioning the writing of some of this down. Most of the epistles were actually written before the Gospels. They didn't see a need for writing the Gospels because the first-hand observers were still alive. It wasn't until those guys started dying that they realized we better get their stories on paper, and so they started commissioning the writing of the Gospels pretty late in the game, and the Nero persecution set a lot of that off. And so some people think that this was Luke um, getting this stuff down lest he be killed in the, in the Nero persecution. So some people put it toward the end of 65 um, at the Nero thing, and that, and he starts both books with this note to Theophilus, and most people think that um, he was writing this for his uh, benefactor Theophilus. Uh, some people think Theophilus is a code word; it means uh, friend of God. Theos meaning God, phileo meaning friendship or, or brotherly love, and so uh, friend of God is what Theophilus means. So some people think it's a code word just for the church. He's kind of writing this secretive letter, this general letter to the church just to get the history down, and he kind of tags it as though it's to a person. We don't really know, but we know it's pretty clean there, 64, 65 um, is when it was written. 
where. This is kind of neat because he just puts it in the first chapter. He tells you where he's going to go before he goes, and then that's exactly where he goes. They start in Jerusalem. The story starts there. It branches off into outer Judea. Then it goes to Samaria and the ends of the known world at the time. And so this is, he tells you where he's going to go, and that's exactly where he goes. Why? We talked about that a little bit. This is just to get the history down. This is just to get it on paper, we think, either for Theophilus or for the whole church as a general letter, but he wrote it just for history, um, and, it, and it stands up. The what, and this is where it gets fun, because <laughs> he's talking about the birth of a church, really. And this is going to kind of intro our, our topic for chapter 1, but Luke is telling a story of a very small group of people that have no political power, no financial power, no educational power, no cultural celebrity power, um, literally changing an empire. I mean, this is their humble, small beginnings, and it's historically fact that this group of people completely changed the world. They completely changed the Roman Empire. Within about 400 years, they're declared the official religion of the Roman Empire, and they literally change the entire world. This group of nobodies. And this actually creates a problem um, with, uh, with historians. Um, I read a, it was a thing that Yale commissioned a few years back, uh, a few years, probably 30 or 40 years back, but where they, they couldn't account for the success of Christianity. It made no sense. When you look at all the big movements and everything that happened, you can, they, historians can almost always go back and say, well, yeah, look, it was all laid out perfect. It was like, of course, that's what was going to happen. It was, you know, you can look at all the markers, and that was the next logical thing. They can't do that with Christianity. There's nothing to show why it should succeed. So Yale called upon a bunch of the best historians on the planet to do some research and submit essays on why Christianity succeeded. And they submitted these essays, and they came up with three main reasons, um, which was number one, and they, they did it by reading the historians of that time, the kind of the first 400 years, they would find historians who wrote about Christianity, and they would look into these guys' writings, and what, what did these guys say about Christianity that made it so successful? And the top three, uh, when all the essays were submitted back then, were number one, Christians died better than anybody else. That was the first thing. And, and some of the stories are huge. These guys, um, one of the worst ones is Nero, when he really started the, Christian persecution, he used to dip Christians in, in tar and then light them to create um, lighting for his outdoor parties. Um, he would burn them alive um, to create, to light up his parties. And, uh, and there's a famous story of, of before they lit it, he was expecting this big um, kind of presentation moment. He had it all synchronized when they were all going to go up in flames. Um, this big ooh-ah moment, and one of the Christians starts singing. <laughs> Sorry. I knew I was going to struggle with this story. I couldn't tell my kids the story. <laughs> one of them starts singing a hymn, and they all start singing together. And until the flames killed the last one, they just sang. This, there was 20 or 30 Christians burning to death and they just sang hymns. And the records say that um, over half, uh, it's believed that over half of the people at Nero's party became Christians when they left. Because something in them said, if, if whatever these people believe can make you face death like that, I need it. Everybody feared death. 
and to to see Christians and their stories of of them in the in the Colosseum and the Circus Maximus uh, marching out and they had lions that they had starved so they would be hungry and the and the Christians wouldn't scatter and run and try to defend themselves like everybody else. They would hold hands and march out and meet the lions. And this impacted the historians of the day. Like the historians of the day were like, these people are not like other people. They don't die like everybody else. And enough historians wrote about it that these modern day historians, looking back, noted that this was impactful. Whatever it was, this, this affected people. The second thing they noticed is that Christianity was more inclusive than any other religion. At this time, religion was divisive by nature. If you lived by the sea, you worshiped the sea god. And if you lived in the mountains, you worshiped the mountain god. And you couldn't live by the sea and worship the mountain god because you didn't live there. And so there was a divisive nature kind of built in to religion. And Christianity didn't have that. Almost every religion, unless it was a priestess, like a goddess religion, um, oppressed women almost universally. And Christianity didn't do that. Christianity came in and it was open to rich, to poor, to slave, to free, to... Um, once we get to chapter 9, it opens up from Jew to Gentile, and it, and it was inclusive to anybody. And this impacted the historians today. They wrote about this. And the third thing was they were more benevolent than anybody else. Um, they gave, and there's a really famous quote from Julian. This is the father of uh, Constantine, who, um, and he was writing, he was trying to figure out how to shut, Christianity had picked up enough head of steam that he's trying to figure out how to shut it down. Um, and this is what he writes, it's kind of famous. He says, why don't we observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and their pretended holiness of their lives that have done most of the increase, most to increase atheism. By atheism, he means nobody's believing the Hellenic gods anymore. They're believing this false god in his mind. So it, he sees this as increasing atheism because nobody's worshiping his gods anymore. That to increase their atheism. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. Teach those of Hellenic faith to contribute to public service of this sort. So he recognizes that the reason they're spreading is because they, they take care of their poor and our poor. Like, everybody can look and see who's taking care of our poor. Like, if we would take care of our poor better, we might be able to shut these people down, is basically what he's saying. We need to talk people into taking care of the poor, because that's the only way to beat these guys. So this guy, Kenneth, um, Kenneth Scott Latourette, um, is the guy who kind of compiled these essays, and he notices something big here. Um, I want to read this quote from him. Because, see, this... The problem was they now have the reasons why it succeeded, but what they don't have, Christians die better than anyone else. They are more inclusive than anybody else. They give more than anybody else, but it doesn't answer why they die better than anybody else, why they're more inclusive than anybody else. Why, like This is not a very old religion. They don't have any examples to really follow at this point. So why are they doing this? And Kenneth Latourette says, the more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for the cause underlying them all. It is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy virtually unequaled in history. Without it, the future course of the religion is inexplicable. Something, even the historians recognize something huge must have happened for this religion to take off the way it did. Nothing else makes sense. 
And that's what this book is about. That's what we're studying, this explosive beginning, this first 30 years, when they're still tiny, they still have nothing going for them, and it explodes to this world-changing movement. It's almost like their, their tininess is what made them so powerful. They were able to fly under the radar and be subversive to the culture in a way that nothing ever had been, which creates our topic for tonight, tension. I'm having, I had a real hard time studying for this message because this is such a, like a fundamental, foundational part of the Christian faith that it's almost too big to figure out how to get into a sermon. And so when this kind of showed up in the text, I struggled with, like, I think my first draft was like an hour and a half long, like, and I've just been trimming, like, figuring out how to get everything we need to in uh, to do this. And this is such a fundamental word that when we were first talking about planting this church and I was kind of kicking around names, I actually thought about Tension Church. Like, that would be, and Esther was like, no one is ever going to come to a church called Tension. Like, Sunday evening, let's go relax at Tension Church. Like, yeah. So, yeah, so we skipped the name, but this is a, this is a major theme in our faith system. And this is the definition I want to hang on to. I'm actually going to leave it at the bottom as we talk. A relationship between ideas or qualities with conflicting demands or implications. A relationship. This isn't just opposites. This is the relationship between opposites. This is the point at which two opposite things meet. This is the tension between things pulling us in two directions. And we're going to talk about how this kind of represents the Christian faith as we go. And I'm going to do it in three ways. We're going to talk about, in chapter 1, we're going to talk about three things that show up, which is who does the work, where does the work take place, where is the work done, and how do we do the work, okay? Because we're talking about the Acts, the, the work of the Gospel. This book's called the Acts of the Apostles. Who does it, where does it happen, and how do we do it? And the first one shows up really almost in the title in verse 1, because the title's called the, the Acts of the Apostles. The book is generally historically called the Acts of the Apostles, and that's what it is. We see people doing a lot of stuff. We see Peter um, coming out preaching an awesome sermon. We see him taking these huge kind of faith leaps. We see him getting beaten. We see him moving to new places and, and following the Holy Spirit into places and, and just doing a lot of stuff. And then we switch over to Paul, and Paul actually gives kind of a breakdown of his life at one point. He's like, I was sh- Shipwrecked. I've been hungry. I've been naked. I've been, I floated on a log for three days. Like I was beaten, and like he he chronicles all this stuff he's been through, and that's what this book does. It tells, it shows us a lot of human activity, a lot of human activity. In fact, when you think about like even some of the miracles of Jesus, the feeding of the five thousand, when Jesus takes a couple fish sandwiches and he like feeds five thousand men plus women and children. If you read that, he, he prays for it, and then he tells the disciples to serve the people. Anybody ever thought about how long it takes to serve five to 7,000 people? I know Dale's like, I could do that in an hour. That's nothing. But, but this, like, this is a, a labor-intensive miracle. And the cool thing is the disciples are the ones who get to see the miracle happen. Because if you're way back in the crowd, all you know is a guy comes by with food and hands you food and moves on. Like, you don't really, you didn't get to see what happened up at the front. The disciples are the ones that are hands-on. They're like, this just keeps going. Like, I just keep serving, and there's just more and more and more. Like, they're the ones that are participating. But it's a very labor-intensive miracle. There's a lot of physical work that goes into serving seven, 8,000 people. 
one of my favorite things, a lot of people when they live in Kansas City visit Colorado, and everybody gripes about the drive out there, you know, just that it's just this boring nothing. I'm like completely the opposite. Like Western Kansas just inspires me because what I see is God's creation and like it's just a reproductive nature of his creation that things can grow and feed people and animals. And I see the beauty of God's creation, but not a square inch of it doesn't also show a ton of human work. Like every field is blocked off and there's fences and there's plowing and there's planting. And like there's a bunch of human effort in cooperation with a bunch of divine miracle almost. And every time I drive through, I just get overwhelmed with seeing like human effort blended with God's creation. Because in all of those other stories, the contrast of that is in the very first line, Luke says, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication being, this is what Jesus continues to do and teach. That that was the, the, my first book was the beginning of what Jesus did, and the second book is the continuation of what Jesus does. This is Jesus' work. This is, his, this is his work. If Jesus doesn't show up, nothing happens. And we can tag a lot of human activity, but this is still God's work. It's God's mission. This is the acts of God, the acts of the Holy Spirit. And this creates the tension. You see the tension between the two? You can look at it and say, if Peter doesn't do his part, Paul doesn't do his part, nothing happens. Eh, I don't know if I buy that. But I know if God doesn't show up, nothing happens. I know if God doesn't show up, nothing in this book takes place. This is God's work. And so we have this tension, this meeting place between the effort of man and the will and wisdom and act of God. And we, we live in that tension. This book is going to describe that tension. It's going to show God doing huge things and people doing a lot of work. This book's going to define the tension between the two. Let's look at the second one. Oh, so who, so who, who does the work? Do we do the work or does Jesus do the work? My answer is yes. Where does the work happen? This is where it gets kind of fun. The, the disciples immediately, and we talked about this on Palm Sunday, when Jesus comes in on the donkey and he says, I'm, and he chooses that metaphor of I am the Messiah and I'm here, and they respond with these really violent metaphors, like they're picturing Jehu and they're picturing the, the Egyptian exodus with the death of the firstborn, and they're, they're picturing, picturing this violent response from Jesus. And then a week later when he turns himself in, they're like, what just happened? Like, this is not what we were expecting. And all the way up to the garden, when Peter pulls his sword and swings the sword and cuts off the ear of the, the high priest's servant, like, they have a picture of what they're expecting. We find out here, that didn't actually go away after the resurrection. They scatter because they're, they were expecting kind of this militant, military Messiah, and Jesus turns himself in and dies. But we see that this didn't go completely away because the very first thing out of their mouth when they all get back together, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you now at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times and seasons which your Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So there's still, and we talked last week about some of the kind of political history of Israel at the time of Jerusalem. They had really only been in captivity about 90 
three years or so at this point. They really had, like, there was probably still a couple people alive that were born in free Jerusalem. So they, they really haven't been in Roman captivity that long. Um, and in this passage, they're still looking to be free. That's, they go to Jesus, they're like, is now the time? Are we now, are you now going to free Israel from our Roman overlords? And Jesus basically blows off the question. He said, that's, not, that's above your pay grade. That's not your, that's not your question. But what I will do, and this is when it gets neat, is he picks some, some language here that they would have been familiar with, which was kingdom language. This is inauguration language. And we're going to break this down just a little bit. Starting in, this is, it's in the Homeric literature before this, but in 281 um, B.C., uh, this Egyptian, this Ptolemaic queen, Bernice, dies. And there was some question to who would be the heir. Um, there was somebody else who was popular, and then there was her son, and they weren't sure what happened. And so somebody claims to have seen her spirit ascend to the heavens. They called it, This became known as the deification of the emperor, and it kind of became a big deal. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the imperial cult. It was a, This was a big thing at the time where they began to worship the emperors. And this created a problem because in their own religion, you couldn't worship a person. It had to be one of the gods. And so um, for the emperor to be worshipped, they had to basically appease the priests. And so an eyewitness would always show up and say, I, I saw Bernice's spirit ascend to the heavens. She became a god. And what that would do is it would give her heir the right to be a demigod, the, the title of demigod or son of god. And so their heir could then be uh, have the most uh, claim to the throne as being a demigod. And, and the, the previous queen or king could be worshipped, uh, their image could be worshipped, and then their heir could also be worshipped as a demigod. And this kind of caught steam. This became a right. You can still go to uh, the forum in Rome under the, the arch of Titus. There's, a, there's an inscription of Titus's spirit coming up out of his body. And so the, their flesh stayed. They would still be buried in the mausoleum. But, and it was always just like one person, a senator or somebody, would come in and declare, I saw the king ascend. Like I saw the king's spirit ascend and go to heaven. And they would declare the deification of the Caesar, the deification of the emperor. And this would allow for people to worship the old emperor and it would secure the throne for their heir. And what would happen when this would happen, there was always, a, there was always kind of a progression First, someone would come out and declare um, the deification of the emperor. They would declare the rightful heir, the demigod heir, uh, would now take the throne. And then they would give power to heralds to go out into the kingdom and announce the new king. And this was huge because the worst thing that could happen is anarchy. Nobody liked anarchy because then everybody fought for everything. And so they would, these heralds would go out into the kingdom and say, the king is dead. Um, and actually later in... in England, it became the king is dead, long live the king, was how they would say it, uh, which means the king is dead, but don't worry, we have a new king, everything's fine. But these heralds would go out and say, the king is dead, he has been deified, his spirit is, has ascended, his heir is on the throne. And this would be like be considered good news in the kingdom, that we have, we have a king, we're not in anarchy. And so Jesus kind of uses some of this language here, only he trumps it because he doesn't, his spirit doesn't ascend. He bodily resurrects and he bodily ascends, which means there is no heir to take the throne. He's taking an eternal throne here. 
And they would have caught this, this imagery that, that there, is, there can be no passing of the throne to an heir because he has bodily ascended and taken the throne. But when he says, but you will receive power and you'll go out and be my witnesses, like we, we think of that in a missionary context. What they would have heard is, this not, that's not the question. Your, your question is not the thing. But you will be heralds. You will go and tell the kingdom about my position on the throne. And this creates a tension because we have this strange reality where Jesus, they're not going out and telling about a future king. They're going out and telling, don't worry, the king is on the throne. Only he's in a divine throne and they're on earth telling, heralding it. You see the tension? Like in that place you would have the king is on the throne in Rome and we're just telling the kingdom that he's on the throne in Rome. In this situation, the, the king is on the throne of God's kingdom and the people are heralding it that don't worry, the king is on the throne. So this is a declaration of everything is secure, the king is on the throne. And what this does, and this creates a funny spot with the kingdom of God because you've got some conflicting stuff. Jesus says, don't say, lo, there is the kingdom or here is the kingdom for the kingdom of God is within you, he says in one part. And then not long after he says, um, I go to prepare a place for you. And when I'm ready, I'll come back and get you and I'll bring you to where I am and you know the place. Like it's a, So in some passages it's a place, in other passages it's not a place. And so we're part of a kingdom that is both here now and, and we advance it and it's something we wait for and hope for and long for. And both of those things exist at the same time. Like a huge part of being a Christian is longing for the time when Jesus will come and make it right. When he'll fix the injustice. When he'll fix the brokenness. It's about waiting and longing and desiring the kingdom. And at the same time, he says, now go, tell him the kingdom's here. You're the herald. You're the witnesses. Go and tell him that the kingdom is already here. And so we live in this constant tension between the kingdom that is here now and the kingdom that is yet to be. And we sit in the place in the middle. The church is that place between the two. Uh-oh. It could be that about once per time. So does the work, does the work of God, the kingdom of God, does it take place here? Or does it take place in the kingdom? The answer is yes. Last one, how does the work happen? And this is interesting. We find this in the very last section. And this is, this is big, especially when you're starting a church. It says, therefore, of these men who had accompanied, or who have accompanied, accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he may go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and lots fell to Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Okay, the first thing we've got to talk about this is this is this shows us how Jewish of a thing this was. And we can't miss this. If you miss this, you, you won't catch some of the big transitions later in the book. At this point, this is a 100% Jewish thing. It's a completely Jewish thing. For them, everything was about twelves. You had the twelve tribes. The priest had the ephod with the twelve stones representing the twelve tribes. 
for them to continue with 11 would have been unthinkable. It would have been absurd in Israel. Like, everything's 12. Jesus picked 12 of us. We can't just go forward with 11. That wouldn't fit. Like, things have to be done right. And to them, this is big to catch, on the, on the Jewish side, like, they, they didn't see what they were doing as converting. They didn't consider themselves to be converting to Christianity. That doesn't come for some time in the story. Like, to them, this is just the... This is just part of their Judaism. It'd be like us if Jesus returns saying, oh, I guess I'm no longer a Christian. I'm now a, a Jesusian because he's here and I'm converting to this new faith. We wouldn't do that. We'd see it as this is what we've been waiting for. Like, of, of course, I'm still a Christian I'm, and Jesus is here and that's, that's what I've been doing. Like, that's what the Jews did. Like, the Jews that were now following Jesus just saw this as we've been waiting for the Messiah. We've been talking about him. We've been... And he's here. So that's, I mean, uh, Bill and Amy told me about their, they used to go to a um, Messianic temple, and the rabbi, uh, I guess, used to say, you guys think it's clever or interesting that I'm a a Jew that believes in Jesus. I think it's interesting that this many Gentiles want to follow a Jew. Like, like they, they didn't understand. So they don't see, they didn't see what they were doing as a, as a, a, a switch. This is, they're just Jews. And they're still practicing Judaism only with a Messiah that's already come. And so it's a big thing to catch here. And this move is part of that. But it shows us something that before anything spiritual happens, they make some structural moves. They make some like governmental, just nuts and bolts decisions. And this, create, this, this shows one of the tensions of the church that we are both like a structured thing and the spirit-led divine thing and that we have rightly ordered worship with, but we also have like spirit-led freedom and we live in the tension between those two. It's, it's why the sacraments are so important because the sacraments are this thing that's been around and been part of our history forever. The sacraments are are a big thing. And if you try to debate the sacraments, they break down and get ugly real fast. Like when we talk about communion, and some people are like, well, is it transubstantiation? Is it, you know, real presence? Is it symbolic remembrance? Like, and, and people will fight about this and actually split about this. And the answer is, you're not supposed to think about it. Like, is this the, is this the body and blood of Jesus? Yes. Is it, but is it still bread and grape juice? Yes. But, but is it, does it become Jesus? Yes. But is, if you, is it still bread and grape juice? Yes. Like, you don't have to think about it. When Jesus said, you know, that we have to be become like children, the sacraments keep us there. Because you don't debate, you don't rationalize the sacraments. When you do, we get things like marriage. We get this sacrament of marriage and people start breaking down like, if it's just a contract, you know, and it, and we don't cherish marriage because it makes logical sense. We cherish marriage because it's a sacrament. Because God, we do it in front of God. And it's a, and it's a divine thing. Baptism is the same way. People argue, can you sprinkle? Do you have to dunk? Do you have Bottom line is, if you don't believe in Jesus, you just got wet. Like, you can do whatever. It's the... And the sacrament keeps us from overthinking. And it just, we do it because we do it. 
And when you do it that way, and you do it because God said to do it, because Jesus said this is what you do, it's like them picking a 12th. Does the whole thing break down if they do it with 11? Rationally, logically, I don't think so. And yet they knew, somehow they knew, we have to have 12. And what's, what I love is how they picked it. They start rational. Okay, well, it really ought to be two guys. That, or it really ought to be somebody that's seen everything we've seen. They've been here the whole time. They narrow it down. Then they flip a coin. Like, God, you know the heart's better than we do. And they, okay, looks like you're the guy. Your name is on the list forever. And we get into Revelation, and it talks about these stones that had the name of the 12 apostles on them. Like, your name is forever on the stones of Jerusalem because you won the coin toss. Like, it's the way we start football games. Like, who gets the kick? The Holy Spirit has spoken. You get the kick. So we live in this, in this, in this rational thing where we, we learn and we teach, and we also live in this sacramental thing that you can't explain and describe. And sometimes it looks silly that we line up in a line and dunk bread and grape juice and say, I'll remember the body and blood of Christ. And yet when you do it, you know something happens. So is the church structured administration or is it spirit-led spontaneity? The answer is yes. Yes, it is. When you, and I've learned more than I ever thought I would how much structure and administration goes into starting a church. We're doing the paperwork for our 501c3 right now. It's ridiculous. I cannot imagine Peter, James, and John sitting down to fill out a 26-page application to get their tax status. And yet we do it. We do both. We do the administration and we follow the Spirit. So the church is this place of tension. It's this place where we, we weekly study 35-year-old text. And then we are constantly looking to the future to see what God wants us to do in the future. Casting a vision. We're always looking backwards. We're always looking forward. We're, and, we're, and we sit in the place between those two. We're this place that looks inside and says, how am I doing? Search my heart, O oh God. This, this internal work. And then we're also this place that says, go out into the world and serve and bless. It's, it's not about you, it's about others. And we live in the tension between those two. We're a place where we talk about our relationship with God. And it's this very vertical thing. And then we're a place where the very first Christians went out and served tables. The very first thing, the very first jobs they had to hire in the church were just table servers, waiters. They couldn't get it all done. They couldn't make sure that all the widows that needed to be fed got fed, so they hired six guys just to serve tables. And it's this church that's about this vertical thing, and it's this church that's about this horizontal thing. And it's a rational thing, and it's an irrational thing. And everything in the church is about these things that pull us in two different directions. And we sit in the tension in the middle, and that's who we are. The church is this place where all these worlds collide. It's about a future kingdom, it's about a now kingdom. We're going to find out next week in baptism it's about water and it's about spirit. And we always have these pressures pulling us in multiple directions. And church is about giving our focus to all of them. 
And we get out of balance when we grab hold of one. When we get too stuck in the past, and we forget that the church is also about the future. When we get too stuck about the internal work, and we forget that the church is about making a difference out in the world. When we get too stuck in our relationship with God, and we forget that Jesus said, when you do this to other people, you're doing it to me. And so the balance of the Christian life is, is, is standing in the middle and holding on to all these pressures and saying, at this place, church, us, is where all this takes place. And probably the most fundamental tension that we live in, and this is what I want to leave you with. Oh, come on. As we enter our time of response, the most fundamental tension we live in is the part of this that we do and the part of this that he has done. And that is always a pressure that we're going to live with, we're going to talk about. Because there are parts of this that we do. There are parts of this that, that we change and we grow and we invest in this relationship with God. But at the same time, none of that is what it's about. It's about what he's done for us. That's at the core of the whole thing. And if I could, I guess, lay out or define one fundamental tension about who we are that we can never lose track of is that while being overwhelmed with what we do and our part in this whole thing, and as the Holy Spirit reveals stuff to us because we're also living the tension between holiness and grace. Because we do want to make a difference. We want to make a difference in the world. We want to take the gospel out and, and help the oppressed and, and help those who are on the margins. We also want to live a holy life and do the things God wants us to do and make changes that he wants us to make. Then if we focus too hard on that, we drop the grace side and we forget that we're also supposed to love and accept everybody and that he loves and accepts us exactly the way we are no matter where we are. We live in the tension between holiness and grace. The one tension we can't lose track of is that everything we do, all the effort we put in, still boils down to what he's done for us. 